0: Haggai chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. In the second year of Darius the king, in the six months, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet of Zerubbabel, the son of Chaltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It is time for your, you and yourself to dwell in your panel's house while this house lies in ruins. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvest little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You cloth yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does not so to put them into bags with holes. Thus said the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look, for much, and behold, behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew it away. Why? Because the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruin, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the herd has withheld its brothers. And I have called for drought on the land and the hills, no gra- and on the grain, the new vine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, no man and beast, and on it all their labors. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Whenever a preacher announces as his text the book of Haggai, People in the pews get a little anxious. (laughs) It is likely that the church is about to begin a major building project, and you're going to get asked to give more money to the church. This little Old Testament book of Haggai, just two chapters, is indeed about a construction project. The call is to rebuild the temple here. As you may know, God's people were allowed to return to Jerusalem after being in Babylon for many years. It was a decree of a new king. Cyrus decreed that now all these people in exile could return, rebuild their temples, rebuild their lives where they're from as long as they pray for him and plead with their gods to bless him. And so the first return in exiles were eager to start rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. They started strong, and yet very quickly experiencing opposition from the local people, they stopped, and the work stopped. And so Haggai's prophetic oracles come in 520 B.C., so they returned in 538 B.C. In 520, Haggai feels the need to motivate the people and their leaders, specifically the high priest and the governor, to finish rebuilding the temple. So if you know the book and the preacher opens the book, you kind of feel like, okay, we're going to build something. We're going to raise money. But let me put your mind at rest. I am not raising money for a construction project. (laughs) Thank you. However, this series of sermons from Haggai is about rebuilding. It's about rebuilding the church. I find a lot of parallels between the state of God's people in the book of Haggai and the state of the evangelical church in America today. So the next five weeks, we'll spend five weeks on these two chapters, I'd like us to examine where we find ourselves as evangelicals, and more importantly, let's explore the direction in which we should be going. I think Haggai can speak to us today. We've called this series, What Now?, and this question is on the mind of many evangelicals who have seen the evangelical movement experience significant changes, especially in the last two or three years. Much like in the days of Haggai, there is a sense that the work of the church has stalled of course, there are many individual congregations that are doing well, many individual people and organizations that are doing well, but the evangelical movement as a whole, of which we are a part as a church, we're an evangelical church, the whole of the evangelical movement seems to be in trouble. So let me show you why I think that. I'm not the only one who thinks that. Many people agree with that. Let me show you Why? Studies show that more than a third of Generation Z, which is my kid's generation, so Zoya's generation, more than a third of that generation identifies as religiously unaffiliated. The percentage of the so-called nuns, so N-O-N-E-S, those who don't identify with any religion, has grown over the last three decades significantly. Sunday attendance has decreased 53% over the last 20 years. We're not talking about comparing to the 50s. We're talking about just the last 20 years. The 2000s, the 2010s, 53% decrease in church attendance. The 2021 survey discovered that 38% of pastors in the U.S. have considered quitting full-time ministry in the past year. So, over a third of pastors have considered that this is not something they want to pursue anymore. Some are predicting a looming pastor shortage in the coming years. The term evangelical today is much more likely to mean a political affiliation than a theological conviction. Denominations and congregations are divided in their response to the COVID-19 pandemic, issues of race and justice in the recent election campaigns. In fact, the evangelical influence seems to be waning in the culture, partly because a part of the church has pulled out of the culture and is opposing the culture with all their might, and the other part of the church has assimilated to the culture and has lost any kind of distinct influence public deconstructions and deconversions are affirmed and cheered on, not only by those from outside the church, but seemingly from at least some from within the church. The last several years have produced an abundance of scandals of high-profile evangelical leaders, including sexual misconduct, greed, sexual abuse, cover-up, at such a level and with such publicity that it has created a leadership crisis in the church. Many evangelicals today are rethinking leadership. They're rethinking what kind of leaders we should have and how to prevent these kinds of scandals from happening again, or at least to this level. Now, if I think about my own ministry and on the local level, if I may speak from my own experience, corporate prayer is neglected. Bible literacy is declining. Financial support of foreign missions is not as strong as it used to be. And many Christians are quite content with superficial relationships in their own congregations. So what now? (laughs) What are we going to do? If you agree with this assessment, how should we as evangelicals remedy the situation? Haggai's first oracle tells us to consider our ways, and then to consider the temple. To consider our ways and to consider the temple. I won't give you all the answers today, of course, we're just starting, but I think we will find in this book, in this little two-chapter book from the Old Testament, I think we'll find a lot of directives for the church today, and we'll be able to figure out better, with more clarity, what we should turn away from and what we should turn toward to and how we can move forward not just as a church, but also as a movement. And I know that when we speak of the evangelical movement, definitions could be blurry. You may feel that you're part of it. Some may feel you're not part of it. Some things I will say will apply directly to us as a church. Some things I will say will apply broadly to the evangelical movement. So be discerning. Don't feel like I'm preaching everything directly to you as a person but do see yourself as part of a larger community, a larger movement, larger work of God, and let's see what we can learn from this book that relates to us, that has to do with our role in this movement and gives us an opportunity to bring change. So let's be careful with this, but let's also be honest and open to what God may have to tell us. Let's consider our ways. Now, twice in this passage, twice in this short passage, we are told to consider our ways. Meaning, pay attention to how you live. Consider your life. Be intentional about examining your life and see if there's anything that needs to be adjusted, if there's anything that needs to be changed. Now, this is a call to us. Consider your ways. Look at your life. Be careful. I'm doing the same thing. I'm looking at my life in light of Haggai, and I'm asking these questions What is it that in my life that needs to be changed? Change must begin with an honest assessment of where we are and what we have done. There is no way forward without an honest assessment, without considering our ways. There's no way forward without it. Unless we are faced with who we are and we actually consider what we've done, what's going on, And you can look at the data, you can talk to people, you can look at the coverage of the evangelical movement, you can look at specific events, you can look at a reputation, you can look at your own life, at your own church, your own ministry, your own finances, your own time. And as we do that, and we get a handle of how things actually are, then we can repent. And then we can change. Assessment, of course, on its own is useless unless it leads to change in repentance. But you have to be honest before you know what to repent from. Listen to Timothy Keller. Tim Keller says, there's no spiritual revival without repentance. There's no reconciliation between individuals or groups without repentance. There's no reformation or change without repentance. Unless we can name fully and truthfully what we have done wrong without excusing minimizing or blame shifting asking God and others for forgiveness for help toward genuine change and for the restoration of relationship there is no hope for the church I cannot argue with that unless we see what's wrong honestly and repent from it and change there is no hope we would be just doing the same things again thinking we're doing great so what now? Now we consider our ways. We repent. We, we see how Haggai can help us do that from this little book. And between these two commands to consider our ways, there is a description of a life. It's a description of a frustrated, unfulfilled life. Look at verses 5 and 6. "'Now, therefore, thus say, says the Lord of hosts, "'Consider your ways.'" You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You close yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does, does so to put them into a bag with holes. Now, this is the experience of these, these returned exiles and its futility and frustration instead of prosperity and satisfaction. They work but they can't produce anything that they actually need. Whatever they have, they're not happy with. They're not content. It seems that everything they do is not working. I think this description of futility and frustration is pretty accurate for many people today, including many people in the church. We're not happy. We're not content. Now, this is a larger cultural question, and if you forgive me for being a cultural critic once again, sometimes I play a cultural critic for you, <clears throat> but this is a huge issue in our culture. We have so much, and yet we're not happy. We do so many things, we're so busy, and yet we seem to produce very little. We rest for so long, so long periods of time, we, we take wonderful vacations, and nobody feels restful. That's a cultural issue, but then when you look in the church, and you say, man, we, we share a lot of those problems. We too are not happy. We too are not satisfied. We're too not content. Why? Haggai tells us. Look at verses 9, 10, and 11. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away, God says. I blew it away. Why? That's their third question. Why is that so? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you, have, above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. God says, the reason you are not happy... The reason you are not content, the reason you're struggling to find satisfaction and you live in futility and frustration is because I do so, he says. I am making you feel like this. I am withholding things that would make you feel different. I am not allowing you to enjoy the fruits of your labor. I am not allowing you to be content. Now, some look at this verse and they see it as a prosperity principle. They say, if you obey the Lord he will bless you with material things. So there's a direct correlation. Obey him, give him what he wants, do what he tells you to do, and then God will bless you. And the more you obey him, the more he will bless you. And if you don't do what he says, he will get you. He'll get you, and he'll take away stuff from you that you need. Some look at this verse and interpret it that way and say, well, what's the application here? Well, obey, give to the church, build a building, go into missions. Give more of your money and time and effort to things of God and you will have more money and better houses and better cars. But if you look at Scripture as a whole, there are so many examples of obedient people who are not blessed materially. The chief of them is Jesus. And it is on Jesus that we model our lives. And Jesus, the most obedient person in the world, had no place to lay his head. So it can't mean that there's just this call to obedience resulting in material prosperity. So what is going on here? I think this is what's going on. Because the people's lives were not centered on the right things, the Lord withheld satisfaction from them. In other words, the Lord in His grace did not allow people to prosper without Him. He did not not let his people to be happy without him at the center. Why is it that some people are genuinely happy with modest possessions, while others are not satisfied with tremendous wealth? One explanation is that when the more important things are right, the less important things are much more enjoyable. And when the more important things are not right, the less important things are not enough to bring fulfillment and satisfaction. This is the Lord's doing. In His great love for His people, the Lord disciplines us by taking things from us and not allowing us to be satisfied apart from Him. Let me give you a silly illustration. If you have a car that doesn't run, can't go anywhere. But all the bells and whistles work. And like a kid, you get in the car, and you turn on the music, and you turn on the windshield wipers, and everything is great. And you say, I'm so happy with this car. But the car doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't actually do the one thing that the car is supposed to do. And the Lord does not allow you to be satisfied to be satisfied with the bells and whistles of life without knowing the purpose of life. On the other hand, you can have a car that runs and has none of the bells and whistles, and you can be perfectly happy in it. You have great road trips because it does what it's supposed to do. Would it, be, it would be nice to have other things with it, sure. And you can enjoy those things if the car works and does what it's supposed to do. But if it doesn't, If the engine doesn't run, it doesn't matter if everything else works. Now, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that those things matter more, but the Lord in His grace doesn't let us do that. If you know what your life is for, you will see every aspect of it as contributing or detracting from its purpose. But if you try to live for something other than what your life is designed for, you should expect a life of futility and frustration. One of the worst things you can experience in life is being satisfied with the wrong things. So God, in His incredible grace, He brings discipline into our lives. And He doesn't allow us to be satisfied without Him. So take a moment and pause and praise Him for that. Praise Him for that that He doesn't let you be happy without Him, that He doesn't let you live a life that isn't meant to be lived and be happy with it, that He draws you to Himself, that He disciplines you, that He rebukes you, that He sends prophets with His words to you and tells you, consider your ways. Are you frustrated? Do you feel like you're working hard but have nothing to show for all your efforts? Do you feel like you eat, but you're always hungry? Drink and always always thirsty? Whatever you achieve just doesn't bring you any fulfillment. Even things that should make you happy don't. Consider your priorities. Do you have the right center? Do you know your life's purpose? That's the question. Now look at verses 2, 3, and 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now this speaks to priorities. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, "Is it a time for you for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins?" Do you see the wrong priorities here? The people did not see the temple as worth their effort. So they made excuses. They say it's not time to focus on the temple yet. Some commentators actually think that they're interpreting prophecies in a way to, to excuse them from working on the temple and saying not not enough time has passed. We're waiting the full 70 years. We're waiting for theological reasons. All sorts of excuses. It's not time to focus on the temple yet. There are other more pressing things. Now, what are they? Building your own house. So instead of centering their life on God, as represented by their concern for temple worship, they centered their lives on themselves. It's a matter of priorities. What's more important to you? you? Are you focused on the center of your life? Are you working from the center out? Are you thinking about the purpose of your life and then seeing everything else, all the bells and whistles in light of that one big thing? Or are you paying attention to everything else and making excuses as to not address the central issue, as to not think about the purpose of your life and not really consider your ways? I heard an illustration about a prankster who broke into a store. In the illustration, he was called a thief. He's was not really a thief because he broke into a store at night and he didn't steal anything. Instead, what he did was he switched all the price tags on everything. A lot of confusion the next morning. Customers come in and shop, and things that used to be very valuable are now sold for almost nothing. And cheap things are valued at enormous prices. When Jesus comes into your life, what you thought was valuable is revealed to be insignificant. And what you thought was of no value at all is revealed to be incredibly important. And the question is, and this is a question of priorities, the question is, as you consider your ways, as I consider my ways, the question is, do your price tags match His? Consider your ways. If you were to value things in your life, relationships, possessions, where you live, where you work, your ministry, are those things as valuable to Him as they are valuable to you? Or is there a disconnect? Is there a difference of opinion? Consider your ways and conform to that. Get the right price tags on your things because there will be a time when Jesus will return as a thief in the night, and he will make everything right, and you will know exactly how much things are worth, and you will know exactly how much time you've wasted on things that are worthless. So we consider our ways. Without honest assessment, and we'll be doing more of that as we go, but it has to start here in our hearts, it has to start in our church as much as we share the problems of the larger evangelical movement. An honest assessment, then that has to lead to repentance. Now you think so far this sermon is a downer. It is. Church is in trouble, my priorities are all wrong, I'm not happy. Yeah. That's an honest assessment for many of us. And like I said in the beginning, we have to start with that. We have to start with being honest and considering our ways. So take what applies to you. Look at your life. Take what applies to you. Don't take whatever doesn't apply. Don't take it. That's for someone else. Take what applies to you. Take what applies to us as a church. Let's look at our church and say, what of this? What of Haggai's words apply to us? Do we have the wrong priorities as a church? And then repent and pursue change. And here's what Haggai tells us is the way of repentance and change. Consider the temple. Consider the temple. Look at verses 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Haggai says, if you want to repent and change, consider the temple. And as you consider the temple, you will be able to adjust your priorities and recenter your life on the right things and work from the center out, knowing your purpose. Now everything else can be put in the right perspective. Now, of course, for us, we need to understand what the temple stands for. What is it? The temple in the Old Testament was the meeting place between God and His people. That's its purpose. The temple is a place where God met with His people. In this temple, sacrifices were offered to ensure that this meeting can take place. That you could go as a sinner to a holy God and meet with Him, and hear from Him, and be reconciled to Him. Several times a year, worshipers would come from all over the land to celebrate God's steadfast love for His people, expressed specifically in these large redemptive events, like like God taking His people out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, and taking them through the wilderness and bringing them into the land. People would come and commemorate that. They would celebrate that because this is who God is, God who loves His people, God who saves His people, God the Deliverer. And they would meet with God and praise Him for that. And they would remember and they would recalibrate their understanding of who God is. And they would hear His word. People gave to the temple treasury to support the work of the priests and Levites in order for God's law to be taught and to be applied in a land. The temple was where God's glory was. After they rebuilt the temple, God's glory would come. And God would dwell there. There was God's presence, God's activity was in the temple. This was a a concentrated place where God was and where his people could be with him. So, if you wanted to know God, you would go to the temple. If you wanted to hear God's word, you would go to the temple. If you wanted to confess your sins and experience forgiveness, you went to the temple. If you wanted to thank God for healing you, you went to the temple. Showed yourself to the priest. If you wanted to celebrate God's blessings of a bountiful harvest, you went to the temple. If you wanted to express your longing for a fuller redemption, as God's people waited for all his promises to be fulfilled, for his Messiah to come, you went to the temple to do that. Haggai is not just calling the people to finish building the building. He's not just saying, you guys have spent too much money on your houses, so let's divert some of that some of those finances towards the temple. Let's, let's build a nice house for God. That's an expression of something bigger. Look at what he says. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house. That's the practical stuff. But why? That I may take pleasure in it. That I may be glorified, says the Lord. The call of Haggai is to refocus on God's pleasure and God's glory. That's why he's telling you to consider the temple. It's because the temple is about God's pleasure. It's about God's glory. Now, I want to make clear that the call to consider the temple is not to do more church things. That's, that's not what Haggai is calling us to do, and that's not what I'm calling you to do. It's not just, you've been too secular, now do more religious things. You're not as involved in, in church programs, now do more. You're not given as much, now give more. That's not... What this is. There may be a specific application to some of us that have neglected church life, sure. But the call to consider the temple is to recenter your whole life on God's pleasure and glory. That's the call. Because the problem with all these priorities is the lack of center, the lack of purpose. And so Haggai is saying look to the temple, the meeting place of God, where you interact with God, where you see His pleasure, where you see His glory. And as you do that, then you can reprioritize your life because you found your center. You found your purpose. And now everything is much clearer. Now you can think, okay, what do I do with my house in light of the temple? What do I do with my money in light of the temple? What do I do with my time, my relationships, my animals? What do I do with all this? You can't answer any of those questions unless you are considering the temple unless you're considering God's pleasure and God's glory. The Haggai's Haggai's call is to rediscover the foundational nature of your relationship with God. You see God, how you relate to Him, how He relates to you as foundational, as basic to your life, and then you work everything else out. And that is the way forward for the evangelical church. That is the thing we're struggling with. We've become decentered. We've lost our way. We've lost our purpose. And so Haggai says, consider your ways. Examine where we are. Yes. Let's be honest. Let's repent. But what's next? How do I change that? Recenter. God's glory. God's pleasure. Let me quote Tim Keller again. He says, the best Christian movements are those that arise out of spiritual awakenings. And that is as necessary today as ever. What is a spiritual awakening? Oh, I'll finish the quote. What, what is a spiritual awakening? It's a rediscovery of who God is. That's all it is. It's a rediscovery of your center, your purpose, God's glory, God's pleasure. You just simply are now faced with the reality of God. That is the spiritual awakening. It's actually not at all complicated to understand, much harder to experience. Right? Because we come with all our wacky priorities into it. Keller says the best Christian movements are those that arise out of spiritual awakenings and that is as necessary today as ever. One of the features of our time is that churches are dividing over politics because people are finding themselves far more passionate and moved by political and social issues than they are by the truths of our faith and especially the centrality of the gospel of Christ. He says they become more exercised and emotional, not in worship, but over flashpoint political and cultural issues. That is a sign of a spiritual vacuum in Christians' lives and emptiness. What he's saying is that, of course, politics matter, of course, social issues matter, but if we are more excited, and if we're willing to divide over these issues with such passion, and yet when we talk about the gospel, there's a lull and there's silence and there's lack of pay, passion, lack of emotion that tells us that you're operating out of an emptiness and that vacuum and you stuff in politics and social issues into that vacuum and not God. The call of Haggai is to fill this spiritual vacuum with God himself with His pleasure, and with His glory. And how can we do that? By considering the new temple. By considering the new temple. When people ask Jesus to do something amazing and to prove that He is someone special, He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, He's saying that in the context of the temple, haven't already been rebuilt. So Haggai's words were heeded that what he called people to do, people eventually did. They rebuilt the temple, and by the time Jesus comes around, this temple is magnificent. And yet Jesus says, another temple is needed. This isn't enough to refocus us, this isn't enough to recenter us, this isn't enough for us to get back to the purpose of our lives. And he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And of course, the disciples are missing the point. People are missing the point because it hasn't happened yet. They haven't seen Jesus die and rise again. But slowly they're understanding that what Jesus is talking about is not another temple, but his own body, his own life. He's talking about himself. He says, I came to be ruined and rebuilt as the new temple. Isaiah 53, 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. In the King James we read, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord. The pleasure of the Lord is supremely expressed in the life, death, and resurrection of his Son. John 1, 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of the Lord is supremely expressed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's the new temple. If you're looking for glory, you're looking for God's pleasure, you go to Jesus directly. Because that is where it is. That's the new temple. That's the meeting place. In the person of Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose for our justification, which is another word of for for being reconnected with God, being cleared before God, being welcomed into His life. Sinners can meet God and are accepted by Him. Jesus is the single, final, once-and-for-all sacrifice that reconciles us with God. His death and resurrection is the decisive, redemptive event that takes us out of slavery to sin and death and the devil and places us right into God's family and right into God's kingdom. Jesus is where God's presence and activity are concentrated. He's the new temple. So if you want to know God, you go to Jesus, because he is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. If you want to hear God's word, you go to Jesus, because he is the word that became flesh. If you want to confess your sins and experience forgiveness, you go to Jesus because He is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. If you want to thank God for healing you, for for saving you, for delivering you, go to Jesus because the Spirit of the Lord is upon Him, because He has anointed Him to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent Him to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You want to celebrate God's blessings in your life, you go to Jesus because in Him, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you want to express your longing for a fuller redemption as you wait for all God's promises to be fulfilled, you go to Jesus, in whom all God's promises are yes and amen. So as we begin this journey through Haggai together in five weeks of looking at these two chapters and considering our ways and considering the way forward, our first point, our first application is to repent and consider Jesus the new temple. And as you do that, as we hopefully all do that, as we do it as a church, as we refocus yet again, as we recenter our lives and reorder our priorities, we will no longer live in frustration and futility, but live for the pleasure and glory of God.